Hello, and welcome back to 15 Minutes of Fascism, a sadly topical podcast covering the global rise of the radical right. I'm Dr. Craig Johnson, bringing to you this week news from Brazil, Israel, Hungary, Germany, the United States, and a CU in hell that's the celebration of a dead right-winger in history from Nazi Germany. Starting out in Brazil, Jair Bolsonaro, the former president of Brazil and often identified as the quote-unquote tropical Trump, although that's a terrible misnomer, Bolsonaro was much, much, much better at building a stable political coalition than Trump ever was and was also a longtime right-wing career politician. Bolsonaro has been rendered ineligible to run for any public office in Brazil for the next eight years. Specifically, he is unable to run for office until after 2030, at which point he will be in his mid-70s. Brazil's Supreme Electoral Tribunal, which is a federal-level judicial body in Brazil that governs these things, specifically said that he was ineligible to run for office because he called for foreign ambassadors to come into his office when he was the president in an attempt to destabilize the Brazilian election by telling them that the Brazilian electoral system was faulty, you know, that uh, that, that votes would be miscounted, right? That, that was what he was trying to tell them in order to set up the basis for a potential soft coup on his part by saying that there had been some sort of miscount or that there had been some sort of voter fraud. The Brazilian electoral system is extremely, extremely good. In fact, it, it's, it's extremely accurate, especially for a country of its size and with its socioeconomic disparities. And so the court said that these were lies, that they were lies attempting to destabilize democracy, which is not allowed in Brazil. And so he's barred from office. That means also that he might be eligible to be prosecuted for a number of other crimes that he's committed because he is no longer immune due to holding federal office. Moving on to Israel, another right-wing politician dealing with some fallout, Benjamin Netanyahu, the prime minister of Israel, is experiencing serious coalition troubles. Specifically, he's getting a lot of dissent from conservative and right-wing forces in his political coalition in the Israeli parliament due to his abandoning some of the most conservative demands that these members of his coalition had for major court reform that would shore up right-wing power in the Israeli government. Meanwhile, the Israeli state is working very closely with right-wing settlers. Those are people who are Israeli, who are Jewish, who are moving into Palestinian territory in an attempt to hold and take more of that territory from Palestinian people. This is also alongside an earlier this week major incursion by the Israeli state into Gaza, one of the largest incursions that the state has performed in several decades. In Hungary, the Hungarian state continues to lose European Union money due to anti-democratic behavior as well as its dissident attitude towards the war in Ukraine, and especially the European Union's position on that war. The Prime Minister of Hungary, Viktor Orban, has been flirting increasingly with really connecting with Putin more than with Brussels, that is the capital of the European Union, and you know the European system in general. Specifically, he is trying to prevent the European Union from getting involved as a body in, you know, enacting sanctions against Russia, in providing arms to Ukrainian forces that are fighting against Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And he is risking and has at this point already lost some money, some funding from the European Union because of these positions. This is in keeping with his attempt to cement himself as one of the leading members of an increasingly international right-wing coalition. 
Moving on to Germany, a German court is to debate very soon about whether a neo-Nazi party, specifically the National Democratic Party, should get federal funding. The National Democratic Party is the biggest neo-Nazi party in Germany, but because of laws against talking about many, you know, just like openly Nazi stuff in Germany, they have a little bit of a harder time than other countries' neo-Nazi parties in just like, even just being a neo-Nazi party, you know, they, they can't display the swastika, stuff like that, right? However, in Germany, many political parties get federal funding as a part of the state's belief in democracy and also in their parliamentary system, which generally relies upon a coalition of many parties as opposed to something like the United States or the United Kingdom system, which revolves around, you know, the success of one party or another in its system, right? So there's a lot of smaller parties. The National Democratic Party is one of them. It is a fascist party. And the question is whether they should get any federal money from Germany, from the German state. Now, this party could conceivably be made illegal, right? They're a neo-Nazi party. You're not really allowed to be a neo-Nazi party in Germany. This question has been raised by, by German courts before. As recently as 2017, it was debated about whether they should be rendered illegal, but it was decided that they were too small and too little of a threat for that to even be relevant, actually. So, you know, they're not really going to be able to do much with this money, even if they do get it. However, the question is, do they deserve it at all? Should they be excluded from the democratic process or would that itself be undemocratic? That's the court's question. Moving on to the United States, we have a couple stories here. The first one is just kind of silly. The Republican Party of the United States tweeted out on the 4th of July, a, you know, like patriotic 4th of July tweet that featured a flag that very much resembles the United States' flag, but which is not the flag of the United States. Specifically, they tweeted an image that contained the Liberian flag. The Liberian flag is modeled after the United States' flag because Liberia is a country in Africa that was founded when the United States was considering returning some formerly enslaved people and the descendants of formerly enslaved people to Africa in the 19th century. So that's why it's based off of the United States' flag. Uh, this is just a just kind of a little funny L on their part. Much more serious news, the Proud Boys, still one of the leading fascist organizations in the United States, despite the fact that they have been seeing serious legal trouble recently, has been fined. Specifically, they have been fined $1 million because of their activities in destroying the property of a historically black church in the city of Washington, D.C., this attack occurred in December of 2020 as a part of riots and actions that were a lead-up to the January 6th attempted coup in Washington, D.C. on January 6th, 2021. So this attack on this black church, which involved the burning of a sign outside the church and also the destruction of several Black Lives Matter flags and other pieces of you know signage, this is the reason that Enrique Tario, the leader of the Proud Boys, was not present on January 6th because he was barred from entering Washington, D.C. on that date because of his previous actions, right? The last two stories that I want to talk about, they are both about youthful influencers on the part of the extreme right in the United States. One of them is about a DeSantis influencer, somebody who is a major supporter of Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida, and the, you know, real alternative to Donald Trump in terms of the Republican nomination this particular electoral cycle. Now, this guy is named Pedro Gonzalez. He is a DeSantis influencer. He's pretty young. 
He is a an open DeSantis supporter, and he's one of DeSantis's biggest supporters online, and also one of DeSantis's biggest supporters in the sort of like right wing echo sphere. You know, he he works for a right wing think tank. He works for right wing magazines, stuff like that. He has now been revealed to be an open anti semite. He has sent out dozens of anti semitic messages throughout the years. This was well known by many of his colleagues, including at some of the leading extreme right-wing think tanks in the United States, for example, the Claremont Institute. They knew that he was openly anti-Semitic, and they still supported him. They're still rallying around him today, and a lot of other DeSantis supporters are also rallying around him still, despite, again, his open anti-Semitism. Breitbart has been publicizing a lot about this. Breitbart, the extreme right-wing news source, that started online and was one of the major ways that Steve Bannon, Trump's sort of fascist demagogue vizier person, really pushed the the news cycle in 2016 towards the right wing. Breitbart, which is super pro-Trump, has been publicizing a lot about this story because they're trying to cause a rift to prevent people from voting for DeSantis instead of Donald Trump. The other influencer I want to talk about is a much younger person. This guy is 19 years old, and it involves an incident at the University of Chicago. Now, this is a particularly interesting story to me because I went to undergraduate school at the University of Chicago, and it involves the University of Chicago's supposed commitment to quote-unquote free speech, which is something that I did a lot of activism around when I was a student there. I am also a higher education instructor, and so this is particularly interesting to me. So the story is like this. An instructor at the University of Chicago was teaching a class, and this class was called The Problem of Whiteness. This is a fairly standard academic language about the difficulties of studying something, or like, you know, the problems of defining something, like what whiteness is. What do we think about it? How do we think about it? You know, problematizing something. The idea isn't whiteness is a problem, although, you know, the title of the class is flirting with that idea. Now, a student at the University of Chicago, an up-and-coming fascist influencer, although he calls himself a quote-unquote dissident, this guy's name is Daniel Schmidt, and he saw this class in the registry and used his extremely big following online, primarily in TikTok, to get people to harass the instructor at the University of Chicago. This harassment involved several repeated posts by Schmidt about this professor and the problems that he had with them and the problems with the university as a whole. This harassment campaign that resulted from his posts ended up in the instructor receiving numerous extremely threatening messages, including some that threatened physical violence or which encouraged the professor to commit suicide. So this is very serious online harassment. However, the University of Chicago, with its commitment to quote-unquote free speech, has done nothing against Schmidt. They've done nothing at all. Schmidt himself has said that probably if he attended any other university, he would have been expelled by now. Now, it's not that the university hasn't done anything about this. Because of this harassment campaign, they changed the term that the class was going to be held in. And then when the class was ultimately actually instructed, they moved it from one of the more accessible, sort of open-to-the-public buildings on campus to a newer one that would require keycard access and that had increased security, meaning that the university administration knew that the threat was real. There was a real threat of physical violence against the instructor of this course and the students who attended it. 
Now, this episode is really instructive. It's really interesting because it shows how fascists use liberal democratic norms. That is, you know, the kinds of things that a Barack Obama or a Joe Biden or even a George W. Bush would get up on stage and say, like, these are American values, right? You know, free speech, freedom of assembly, that kind of stuff, the Bill of Rights kind of things. It shows how fascists use those tools because they see them as tools. They use those tools in order to get into the political system in order to enable themselves to take up space and to use violence. They, they use those tools in order to enact violence against their opponents. And if we don't stop them, they get away with it. All right, I'm going to close out this week like I do every week with See You in Hell, a segment celebrating the deaths of prominent right-wing figures in history. This week I'm talking about somebody that I think I've actually mentioned before, but he warrants mentioning again. The guy's name is Otto Skorzeny, a noted Nazi commando. Skorzeny was born in Vienna in 1908 to a military family. He was a fencer during his university years. It was the origins of a massive scar that he had on his left cheek. He joined the Austrian Nazis in the early 1930s. Specifically, he joined the paramilitary wing of the Austrian Nazis, which meant that he was a Nazi, not a Austro-fascist, right? He, he believed in the Anschluss, the connection of Germany and Austria. When the Anschluss happened, when Austria was joined to Germany, he joined the SS. Specifically, he became a member of one of Hitler's actual personal bodyguard groups. When World War II started, he was part of an Eastern Front invasion. You know, he had plans to invade actually, you know, Moscow. He was supposed to command a group of SS soldiers who were going to take part in a real invasion of Moscow. That ended up not happening. An injury led to him getting a desk job where he advocated for several partisan-style commando groups to be formed in the SS. He did get this to happen. Uh, so he led a number of small commando units in the SS from 1943 to 1944. These commando groups had several operations planned, or at least, like, you know, imagined, dreamt up, including the assassination of FDR, the assassination of Stalin, of Churchill, at the Tehran Conference, when all three of these people were together, kidnapping Horthy's son, this is the leader of Hungary, uh, and one of their actual successful commando raids was the quote-unquote rescue of Benito Mussolini from Allied hands. They also planned commando resistance organizations upon the Allied victory in Germany. After the war, he was captured by the Allies and went on trial for war crimes, not his war crimes against civilians, uh, like Instead, the wearing of enemy uniforms in order to get behind enemy lines kind of stuff, you know, like like standard war crime stuff. He was acquitted on some of these crimes, but escaped from prison to Spain in the 1950s, where he stayed for a very long time. He did very well after the war, Scorzini did, as a military consultant in the Spanish-speaking world, but also in the Arab world. He was a military consultant to Juan Perón, the president and dictator of Argentina, he worked with the Spanish government of Francisco Franco. He also worked with Arab nationalists like Abdul Nasser. He essentially made a guerrilla warfare consulting agency called the Paladin Group and was also involved in a lot of Spanish anti-communist violence. I'm sorry to tell you that rather than seeing justice, Otto Skirzani died of lung cancer this week in history, July 5th in 1975 in Madrid. So, Otto Skirzani... We will see you in hell. All right, that was 15 Minutes of Fascism, a sadly topical podcast covering the global rise of the radical right. I'm Dr. Craig Johnson, thanking Sleepy Kitty Arts and Sleepy Kitty Music for our intro, outro, and graphics. 
If you enjoyed the podcast, please like, share, and subscribe. Please leave a review on whatever it is you're listening to this on. Check out my Patreon at patreon.com slash 15 minutes of fascism. That's 15 minutes of fascism spelled out and all one word. That's also where you can reach me on Gmail, 15 minutes of fascism at gmail.com. I am still on Twitter at hist of the right. I might be moving somewhere else eventually. And I'm also on Twitter at fascism15. All right. Thanks very much. And I will talk to you next week. Thank you.